0: Hello, everybody.
1: Hi, everyone.
0: Welcome to a very special episode of BM Pod. But before we get to that, there's something else I have to address.
1: What is it?
0: What could it possibly be? It could possibly be, yes, something to do with the Afraid of Sunlight album. We're dragging it out, everybody. Woo! Woo! (laughs) If you recall last week, we discussed our interpretation of the song Beyond You. Now, I have since been contacted by friend of the podcast, an unofficial third member of BM pod Fraser Marshall, who some of you will know from his interview that he did with us a few weeks ago. Fraser works on The Web magazine and is also the person behind the Meridian Explanations of Song Elements website. Mm. Now, we slightly disagreed with Fraser on what I believed was his interpretation of the song. However, Fraser was contacted me to say that I misunderstood. So Fraser messaged me and he said, I think you slightly misunderstood my take on Beyond You. I don't think it's a song about being in a relationship and not being able to get away from someone. Have they locked the door? Do they not respect personal space? It's a post-breakup. It's fallen apart and he's in a mess. And if he thought it would help matters, he'd cry like a baby about it. But he knows enough to know that won't help. So he's trying to move on but everything just comes back to that person and he can't move past it. Nothing else, family, friends, helps. But he does actually realise the relationship has irretrievably broken down and it'd cause more harm to try and mend it. Very much through the lens of my own experience and absolutely no guarantees that's correct, but that's what it speaks to for me.
1: Hmm, I think that makes perfect sense.
0: What's also interesting is our good friend Mark Paling has the same viewers, Fraser, that it's a post-breakup song.
1: Yeah, I thinking about it now... That makes sense. That makes sense.
0: What is consistent is that both our interpretation and their interpretation is that it's a song about someone you can't be with, Mm. who you want to be with. Yes. And it hurts your heart not to be with them. Yes. I suppose... I always lean towards our interpretation of the song because I know H was in a marriage at the time. He hadn't broken up. I know, as history has recorded, that there was a degree of turmoil within the marriage, which did sadly eventually lead to a breakup. But at the time, he was still in it. Oh. So I never saw it as a breakup song. But anyway, we thought we should just address that before getting onto to the meat of this week's episode, our exclusive interview with Mr John Arneson, who many of you will no doubt be aware, was Marillion's manager for 16 years, during unquestionably their most commercially successful period, through signing with EMI, The Fish Years, right up to them, recording Brave, Afraid of Sunlight, and some albums beyond that, and he was very kind to give us his time, and he's an absolutely smashing bloke. I will say that now. And it was a real honour for me because John Arneson was always one of those names like Privet Hedge, who Marillion sound engineer, who felt like that he was part of the Marillion gang or Marillion family, except obviously sort of, sort of behind the scenes, except when he made a brief cameo appearance in the Heart of Lothian video. So I'll stop waffling uh, and we'll just crack on with it. This is uh, me chat, chatting to the legendary John Arneson. I don't think there's going to be anyone listening to this who doesn't know who you are, but (laughs) um, before we kind of get into Meridian and stuff, I mean, just how do you become a manager?
1: Right. Well, it was one of those things that I, I originally was at law college and uh, I was training to be a lawyer. I was a junior article clerk. um, And then whilst at college, I started running a a disco on a Friday night in the bar. And I decided that uh, I'd start booking a few bands to play. And that led to me being offered um, two or three venues uh, in South London, which is where I come from. Uh, One was at Thames Polytechnic, and one was called the Saxon Tavern in in, uh, Sydenham. And I used to book a few bands. Uh, And to me, that was my hobby. Outside of training to be a lawyer, um, and then literally, oh, you know, I, I booked a, a, a band with a girl singer called Jenny Hahn, and she just rang me one day and said, "Look, we've been offered a record deal by EMI Records, and uh, there's a management company would like to sign us, but they suggested we bring in our own day-to-day manager." So they gave me a phone number, and I rang them up, and they gave me the address in Soho. And I went for a meeting and I walked through the door and on the wall was gold discs for Stateless Quo and Rory Gallagher, wow. and this was 1976. And so, anyway, cut long story short, they offered me a job. So I went back, I must admit, and told my parents that i have been on this job in music. Um, and they said, well, what? give it a shot, have some fun, because you can always go back and be a lawyer. Well,
0: that's almost the opposite of what (laughs) most parents would say.
1: I know, but I think what they realised is that by promote by you know over every weekend, I was working Friday, Saturday, Sunday, promoting concerts and running, uh, being a DJ, and I was earning way more money (laughs) than I was getting paid by the by the solicitors to be an article clerk. But anyway, cut long story short, I joined. I joined. uh, Quarry Productions, as the company was called, in 1976. And it was one of those really lucky things because I think that I I worked for them for four years. Uh, and uh, obviously, Status Quo then had the big single, Rock and Over the World. And we promoted their their tour in-house. And because I had a bit of experience promoting they gave me the job of promoting the tour and wow. um, and it was as simple as that and I worked it was like an apprenticeship in management it was great because I started at the top really yeah um and uh, and Rory Gallagher was as big you know he was doing multiple nights at Hammersmith etc and um uh, and obviously we had the you know we had a few small bands that we were given to work on and the punk era came along uh, and I managed a band called Penetration from Newcastle and the punk poet John Cooper Clark oh, my yeah. training. It was very weird. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so, uh, yeah, that's how I got into the music business. Right. And then in 1981, uh, quo sort of believe it or not at that point, once, once of many times decided to split up. So the, the, the management company closed down for a little while. Um, and I, I basically carried on looking after John Cooper Clarke. Uh, and then one one day I walked into the Marquee Club and heard a band playing that sounded like Genesis. Right. <laughs> and, uh, what happened was that there was a press officer called Keith Goodwin and he came up to me and said, oh, John, thanks for coming. And I thought, well, yeah. he didn't invite me, but I'll play, I'll play along with, <laughs> with this one. Yeah. And he said, because um, I've got this new band, and I think they're fantastic, and I really do think there's a chance for them to come through, go and have a listen. So I walked into the, into the, yeah, the main room at the Marquee Club, and I, I, w- I looked at them, and I thought, clever it is it's just like Genesis, this. The band were great, but what was even more impressive was the audience, because it wasn't old prog rock fans. It was full of youngsters. Yeah. Um, Because what I didn't realise is that they were being very clever at the time in that uh, from Owlsbury, they hired a couple of coaches and brought a lot of fans down to really impress. And it worked, you know. um, Keith came up to me afterwards and said, would you like to meet the guys? And I said, absolutely, definitely. And we arranged a meeting the following week. I think think Fish was living in Earl's Court at the time, so we met in a pub there. And um, quite simply... um, you know, they they said, you know, let's have a three month trial. Wow! Um, and that was it. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And the three months turned into sixteen years. Yeah. <laughs> wow!
0: Um So, for you, was it was it a, a case of you like the music and you like what they did, or was it more that you sort of saw that they were going
1: somewhere and they had a a following? It was it was a bit of both because just to step. One step back from that was that when um, the whole Quarry Productions company sort of uh, was was sort of breaking down as such, there was a uh, press officer there uh, called, called um, Keith Ortham, mm. and he took me out for lunch and he just said and he said to me, John, I think that you could make a really good manager one day. <laughs> he said right. you been trained. He said, but my tip for you is is don't manage too many acts. Right? You need to you, to have a career in this business, you need to break an act. And you've got to find an act that you can break. And when you do, drop all the smaller acts and just put all the effort into breaking that band. And I have to be totally honest, when I stood in front of that crowd, in front of that band the first time, uh, I just thought, yes. Because you know, I, yeah. I, I love Genesis as much as I like status quo. I looked at that young audience punk was over. Mm. Um, and I thought people are going to love this. Yeah. This can really, really work. And fish was a great front man. The band were really good. Um, and I thought, right, this is the one I'm going to go for. And, uh, I did.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you made it work <laughs> in
1: a big way. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: So uh, it, they, do you think, cause it, the music they were making was, 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 despite that following that they had built up, it was kind of out of step with the
1: times. Oh, totally, totally. There was nobody else doing anything like that at the time. And um, I. Uh, it was weird because I, I, I spoke to uh, an a and man at EMI who I, who I knew quite well called Hugh Stanley Clark. Mm. And we went up to see, see the guys up, um, up in uh, Milton Keynes. They are playing a pub up there. And he agreed with me. He just thought this is great, right? Yeah. Um, and the he said, right, let's put them in a studio and we'll do some demos. And what happened was that uh, he had booked. Uh, you know somebody that he knew. The band went into the studio, which was a shed in the, at the bottom of his garden. Right. <laughs> and unfortunately, he was really an engineer, not a producer. And the band at that point had never gone into a studio and never really done anything like that. So the demos weren't that great. Mm. Um, and I met with with Hugh, and and we agreed. I think it might have come from Hugh actually. So I don't want to play these to my boss because my boss will just turn this down. Right. Um, so I said, well, look, they're doing the marquee next month. I said, why don't we bring the a and team from EMI down to the marquee to see them live? Um, and, see, and that's what we did, and it worked. The band brought their usual crowd down. It was packed. The crowd went down a storm, and EMI said, "Yeah." Let's do it. Let's do the deal. Wow!
0: It was as easy oh, as that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it was, yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, it wasn't. Looking back on it, you know, the, the deal was not originally um, an album deal. It was. Uh, it was a couple of singles with an option on a debut album, um, which uh, was mainly because the, you know, a lot of people were still a bit skeptical about whether there was a market out there. You know, for a prog rock band, yeah, to be honest.
0: yeah, understandably at the time. Yeah. So, do you think those early Genesis comparisons? Do you think because people often, or certainly the band, when I've heard them talking over the years, have talked about how it was a bit of an albatross yeah. around their neck? But do you think there was an element of that actually helping them
1: find an audience? Um, I, I do, I do. I mean, it was. Let's say an albatross. It's like you know when you look, listen to back to a couple of the early songs. Um, It's funny because I, as you probably know, later on we we we, you know I've worked with Tony Smith. And uh, Tony laughed and said, "I never heard that, those those first few singles." He said, <laughs> <laughs> he said awesome. "If I had not done, I'd have come to you for a percentage of them." Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they were sailing um,
0: close to the wind on Grendel, especially
1: Grendel, especially. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Grendel was just so, <laughs> but, but we got away with it at the yeah. end of the day. Um, and of course, you know, Fish's initial, you know, for the first year or so, he wore the the yeah, the face, makeup, etc. Yeah, but um, but then there was, you know, you, you there was a huge market, a huge market f- for that kind of music, yeah. uh, with a younger generation. You know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, I think it it for me when I heard it, I mean, I was I I wasn't there. A part of the sort of first wave. I didn't really know what prog rock was when I first heard them. I just kind of went, I've not heard music like this before. And then it was later that people would say to me, oh, they sound like Genesis. I was like, what,
1: who? Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's true. And it was, it was funny because in the early days, people said, what are they? Are they a rock band? Are they, you know, even some people even called them a heavy metal band. And I said, well, no, they're certainly not heavy metal. You know. Yeah. 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 Um, and it was very much sort of it was almost like uh, I've got to be honest I think it came from Sounds magazine that sort of came up with this new wave of progressive rock rock you know mm. yeah um, and obviously there was a few other acts out there you know, Pendragon was one of them that was doing the same kind of thing yeah. and Solstice um, but the crowd you know the crowd were there and that was that was was brilliant for all of us, you
0: know. Yeah, absolutely. So, on to the, 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 the single. Um, you had a different producer for Market Square Heroes than uh, you did for the album. Um, yeah. What happened there? Why didn't you, the, the, the band, keep the same producer? Because uh, to my ears, I, I love the sound of Market Square Heroes, Grendel
1: particularly at the time. Um, well, that, 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 that was a very unfortunate situation in that what happened was that... The producer had a car crash oh geez yeah it was uh, when he was coming back from doing the single and delivering the tapes he had a ba- really bad car crash and um it was a situation where that we sat down or I sat down with EMI and he was going to be out of action for at least six months it was a real serious crash it was touch and go whether he was going to lose, To be honest right right and we had to make a decision um and uh emi said look you know if this works we want to move we can't we you know we can't so uh, we don't want to hold this if, if this first single works the way that the plan is we need to move so we need to find you know uh, a new team yeah you know? Which is that? That's how that, that that's how that happened. And we, you know, I must admit, we were a little bit, we didn't know, um, but Martin was uh, the man for the job. Yeah. You know? so, so,
0: why uh, was the decision made not to include any of the tracks from the single on the album? Do you remember?
1: Uh, I just think we didn't need them. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> you know <what> I, mean? <laughs> I mean, because the band were being very, very creative. Um, and it was like uh, we thought, right? You know, let, let's, you know, let, let's move ahead. And we did, we just you know. In a way, further down the line, it meant that that, you know, that initial EP kept on selling, you know, yeah. as well. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was almost
0: the length of an album in itself. If you got the twelve inch, yeah. wasn't it? I think so. So, what can you remember about um, th- that whole recording of script from you know that period with a. I mean, the band, they were, must have been pinching
1: themselves. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, you know, firstly, we recorded the bulk of it in, in the marquee studios behind the club, mm-hmm. which is where the, the whole thing was sort of growing. Um, so they felt really, really comfortable. Um, it, was, uh, it was a really positive time, to be honest. I mean, it was... Uh, behind the scenes, we were having... That there was a question mark with the label um, about when I can say this now about you know the ability of some of the players right. <laughs> in the band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was you know, and I you know, and, and myself and Hugh went to the the rest of the A&R team. It, it wasn't me and Hugh Stanley Clark. It was sort of like the more senior ANR team at EMI. We we're all very much like, well, if this is going to be the new prog rock, these guys have got to be, you know, like up there with Genesis and Yes and all these prog bands. Yeah. And I just went in and said, well, they all had to start somewhere. <laughs> you know? There's no way that we're going to um, muck this up because the the vibe within the band was really strong. The band were, you know, were, were working together as a really good team. Um, and, uh, you yeah, know, that, that's basically the way we move forward. Yeah.
0: Yeah. As, uh, yeah. Cause as, as history records after script, it was then you kind of went into the, a, a bit of a revolving door of dramas. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, I mean, it was, um, it was a very difficult time after the first album. It was one of the things that, uh, I mean, you know, it, we had an incredibly, uh, successful first year. Mm. Um, I mean, and from a live point of view as well. I mean, we went from you know the marquee um, up to you know Hammersmith. Mm. And what was amazing, and I actually think this is still a record today, is that uh, I always remember talking to the um, you know, the promoters and them saying, "Look, with Merlin, let's let's go for Hammersmith." you know because it's the your audience will want to sit down for some of the songs it's not a stand up and run to the front it's a a lot of this is is like that the the progress audience like to listen yeah (laughs) um and unbelievably we went on sale and we sold out Hammersith Odeon before the debut album was even released wow and I did really I mean I know at the time we were the first band to to do that and um and it, we ended up selling out Two Nights at Hammersmith on the first album tour, which was, which, was, which was great. Really, really good. So, yeah, I think
0: it was after, wasn't it after the show that was recorded for the script that um, Mick was, was kind of let go? And then, and then how, what happened next in terms of finding a new drummer?
1: Yeah, I mean that was a very difficult time because what had happened, you know, I mentioned earlier that sort of some people had questioned some of the some of the abilities of the players, mm. um, and I think that uh, basically part, you know, the, the label and the production team said, "Look, you know, we've 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 got an issue here with Mick Pointer. Mm. Um, it's uh, he's all the other players, you know, from you know." All, all the other players had progressed hugely in that first eighteen month, you know, year, you know, and they uh, said, "Look, they're really, really good, but but uh, we need to look at, at that situation." Yeah, and so it was a difficult one for me because I know, you know, Mick had sort of formed the band, yeah. but we, yeah. you know, as a manager, I've got to go along and talk to the band and say, "Look, this is this is what they're saying." You know, we've done very well, but we they really feel that to, you know we didn't want to go Behind mixed back and bring in a, a session player and that sort of thing. So, um, and they really wanted this is EMI, they really wanted to keep the ball rolling yeah. because the yeah. momentum was that that's very much the way it worked in those days. You know, you've got once you've got the momentum, you've got to keep pushing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was a difficult situation, and, and I know the fish sort of. So let's go around and see Mick and and, and uh, let him know yeah. that uh, we needed to move on. And then it was a question of finding someone someone else <laughs> to right. fit. And as you know, we went through two or three different drummers, um, played a few shows, um, uh, and then uh, finally Ian stepped in. And, and initially, we brought him in for the for the you know to record the album. And then do the tour, uh, with Fugazi, and uh, you know, we he he actually turned out to be a really good sort of band. Not only was he a really good experienced musician, mm-hmm. um, that became quite a solid member of the band, but he also had a very good sort of temperament within the band, right. um, which was one of the issues. I mean, to be honest. Um, i think fish and mick pointer would agree that they they didn't see eye to eye right. a lot yeah yep. it's probably the easiest way to put that <laughs> so
0: yeah that's the diplomatic <laughs> answer. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know a lot of the time as my my role as manager was just sort of coming in the middle and going, hold on, guys, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I bet, get, calm down and let's. Uh... So uh, and and to be honest, Ian, Ian just he just fitted. His playing was great. Um, as a person, he was is a, a little bit older than the rest of the band, um, and he he just fitted perfectly, yeah. Yeah. and uh, and he's still there. 30-odd years yeah, down and off. He is yeah.
0: indeed, yeah. So am I right in thinking that before um, Ian joined, the, the band went to America for the first time? Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. So what, what, what are your memories of that tour? Because am I right in thinking that it didn't go terribly well, that first visit? No,
1: I must admit that um, EMI in the UK had assumed that the Americans would love... Uh, Marillion, the way that um, they they'd taken off in the UK, and s- the things had started in Europe. Mm. You know, it, it really sort of had gone better than we had expected over here. And Capitol Records in America had thought it would work over there, mm. but when we went over, it was uh, it, it it was literally going into into 500 capacity clubs yep. and not selling them out. Um, there wasn't there just wasn't that demand and one thing that when we looked into it it was the fact that the the um punk hadn't really happened in america so the radio stations were still playing prog rock yeah. from the original prog rock bands yeah. and i think it was quite difficult to break through
0: yeah. yeah it was a market that was sort of slightly more familiar with prog but not be there were already established acts is that yeah yeah um so fugazi then um i think history records that as it was a tricky album to give birth to is that is that how you remember it
1: well it was um it, i mean we we can think about it you know looking back on it the two sides of the story the first one was that we felt that, that it was needed to to Continue hmm. quite soon to right. keep keep that uh, market happy. The other side of it was that it probably didn't give the band time enough to progress in the songwriting to move to a different level. Yeah. Um, so really, I mean, if you looked, I mean, I'm somewhere somewhere in my, you know, I, I've I've got the sales figures, and you know, Fugazi sold almost exactly the same. It was like we, what we did was that we, we satisfied the existing audience, but it didn't grow. Mm. Um, so was that seen as a disappointment at the time? It was, it was a disappointment, and it led to quite a difficult situation because um, from a business point of view, uh, EMI came to us and said, well, look, you know, we're not sure we want to carry on. Because at the moment, we're not making any money from Meridian. You know, the amount of money you're spending recording and the advances we've given you on the first album, um, we've done on the second album, but you haven't increased your market share. You've only sold to the same people. And we don't really feel, we're not certain where we're going. Right. Um, and that's why we ended up, and you probably know, we had to, we had to put out a reel-to-reel live album which is very unusual after just two albums and no hit singles (laughs) yes uh, we what happened was uh, we sat in the meeting we said well if we can sell 200,000 reel to reels that will give us the money to make the third album yeah and and that decision was made and when we the band believe it or not almost got dropped until we agreed to do that wow
0: I didn't know that but it it came close at that point so well then I mean, luckily, uh, it did all change with the next album. But the the, the stories I've always kind of heard is that Kaylee uh, kind of happened by accident. But was there a pressure on the band to make something more commercial or have a hit single then with the next well, album?
1: I mean, one, one of the things that, yes, they were, that basically what we were told was that you have to have a, we, we need not, it's not some, it wasn't so much a hit single. It was a it was a radio single. Right. Because technically speaking, if you look back, (laughs) the tracks off of the first two albums did go into the singles charts, but they literally pinged in the charts and dropped out again, uh, and didn't get radio play. And what happened was that they, you know, um, Chris Kinsey was brought was brought in, and. I remember sitting down with Hugh Stanley Clark and, and and Hugh saying to us, not not directly to the band, that uh, we really do feel we need a radio track here. We need something that can get on the radio, that can move us, you know, up, can get mm. the sales to, to go up. Um, and we booked a studio in Berlin, uh, and it was very much, well, look, you know, Chris, can you keep your eye on to, to what you think would be a single? Yeah and then he called me up and just said i think i've got it here. Oh
0: wow, wow. Okay. <laughs> okay.
1: You well, the band had just written a written a, a song. And in the middle of this particular song and they hadn't even given it a title at that point i don't think. He said there's a piece of music which i think i can turn into two singles. Wow. And so i said to so i told Hugh and um Hugh said well let's let's uh, let's both go out to Berlin and, and have a chat with Chris and talk to the band. So we flew over there, we sat down with the band, and he explained to them how this, this piece, of which was Kaylee and Lavender, yeah. yep. <laughs> were, were one piece, and how he could chop it and turn it into two singles. Wow. And after a quite a lengthy discussion, <laughs> yeah. the band agreed for him to give it a go. You know, just to see, and um, and that was it. And Kaylee was, was uh, Kaylee was born. Basically, it was a it was a, a brilliant piece of uh, production. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And creating, and, uh, and to be honest, um, you know, I I got very very excited about it as soon as they heard Kaylee, they thought, All right, this is this is going to get on radio, and it, and it was far more successful than we expected it to be. I mean, especially in places like Germany, where it was huge, you know. Um, and then when the album came out, and you know, Kaylee went to you know, went to number one. I mean, we were kept off the number one spot for the first week by the uh, what was it? The charity. That's scene. right.
0: Yeah, yeah, I remember that.
1: Yeah. Um, but putting it bluntly, we went from two hundred fifty thousand album sales one and a half million Just so like.
0: what what was that like for you and the band was it bizarre did it
1: I mean how did it feel well it was it was fantastic I mean it was something that I mean by this point this was 1985 so we've been working really hard for three years um, and uh, give the band due I mean one of our I know sometimes some people say they were working too hard live but if you look at the live dates it wasn't more than most people were doing at that point um, but it just, it just, you know, put them through. And it was like, I remember talking with the band and it was like, well, do you think our fan base will like this idea of of having a hit single? Right. right. Yep. <laughs> and uh, it was like, it's, it's you, it, it is you. Okay. There's not a huge long guitar solo in the middle and it's, uh, it's a very sing along song, you know? Um, and but it but it it took them to another level. It took them right up there.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So uh, it was uh, listening to sort of recollections from the band at that time. It seemed like it was uh, that new kind of step up, that taking it to the next level. It it became yeah. quite a a wild time for them, a bit of a, a party time. I mean, how much as manager do you kind of try to rein that in? And how much do you? Sort of turn a blind eye to it, I guess.
1: That's a tough one to call, actually, because I mean, uh, if, you, if you if you talk to Ian Mosley, he always says that I was the leader of the party. <laughs> <Yeah>. Fair enough. <laughs> so you were, you were sort of, you were right in there. You were just kind of surfing it I with know, them. I to tell you, it was I was I was one of the gang. There's no doubt about it. It was just you know from. It's a weird one because because I'd started with Status Quo, yeah. who were very much a party band. It was very much, you know, look guys, let's just um, let's just enjoy this, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do, you know. There were times when I had to step in and just say, "Hold on, guys, let's just not go over the line." You know, we've got to, we've got to try to you know let's be professional here. Um, and uh, no drinking before a show. Right. Right. And <laughs> you, know, um, you make sure that you deliver because that's the last thing you ever wanted. Uh, and and that uh, they never they never never went down that route of you know you hear stories of some bands that could hardly stand when they got on stage, but that 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 was not the the, the They were always always, but they they. Enjoyed themselves around it. Yeah. You
0: know? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll draw a veil over.
1: For <laughs> <Over laughs> that, perhaps. Yeah, um, yeah, enjoyed around it. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. So, for you as manager though, that time, were you suddenly a lot busier than you had been? You know, were there a lot more sort of calls and just just more to do being at that level?
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, it's like you know, like one of the things when I sat down with the band in in the pub, the first meeting, I said I, as I said, is that when you start, it's it's you five members and me, right? And as you grow, um, you know, you 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 need more people around you. You need a bigger road crew. You need a bigger team. You need you know, you have to put the whole team together. I said, and, and as you go up the ladder. It takes more and more people, more and more people to that team. Um, but at the end of the day, if you come sliding down the other side, it'll just be me and you again. Right. <laughs> That's it. All those people will just run away the moment things don't go according to plan. So I was very busy, absolutely very busy. Uh, and as a band member, as I mentioned early, when you've got earlier, when you've got five people. Uh, in a band, they don't always see eye to eye, so you do have to sort of stand there and try to be the person that that makes sense of it all to everybody. Well, that was actually
0: what I was going to ask next was because obviously going to clutching the straws, there were tensions within the band. When did you first become aware of those?
1: Um, it was it was basically you know. Thinking back, it was—I met well, Fish came to me um, before before the, the 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 last tour that we were doing, mm. uh, and basically, putting it bluntly, said to me, "Look, John, I want to change some of the things. I want to change some of the way the band's working." Mm. Um, uh, and th- without going into detail, I didn't agree with th- th- some of the changes. Well, most of the changes that he wanted to make. Right. And I said, "Look, you know, what we should do now is we do need to have a break. Clutching at straws. It's the fourth album in just over what, what six years, mm. five years. Sorry. Um, let's um, let's get through this tour. We're finishing with you know, um, to, you know, three nights at Wembley, and let's uh, take a bit of a break, and then we'll sit down with the band and we we'll discuss how we go from there." And at first he said, "He no, um, okay, that's fine.'" Then they did go over to America because that was one of the one of the issues was because of Kaylee was so huge. Yeah. Uh, you know EMI, the capital wanted the band to tour America. Yeah. Uh, EMI wanted the band to tour Europe. (laughs) Right. Okay. Balance. (laughs) Uh, And and the truth is, quite frankly, Europe was, by this stage, we were doing ten, twelve thousand 12,000 capacities right across Europe. And so it was agreed that we would do that first and then go over to America. And so the band then went over to the States to do a promo tour for the label, which really was doing small venues all over the place. Mm. Um, and I got a call just from, from one of the row crew, just basically saying, look, John, there's some issues going on over here. You know, um, some things have been said and it's looking pretty, you know, you need to get on. <laughs> you need." To... And it, it was, I, I brought you, know, you, you probably heard of Rod Smallwood, who managed Iron Maiden. Yeah, yeah. Well, Rod had come in with me and was the co-manager of the band in America. And I originally called Rod and said, "Look, can you, you might have to go and see what the issue is here." Um, and then Rod just said, "Look, you know the boys better than I do. You better come over." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, <laughs> fine. So I flew over um, and uh, again had another chat with, with Fish and said, "Look, let, please just leave this until the end of the tour. Let's not let's not bring this out now." Mm. Um, because it was something that I really didn't think that the, the 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 rest of the guys would be happy with. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, cut long story short. When we when the tour finished, I said I originally said to everybody, "Like, let's have a six month break, go off and and sort yourselves out." But then Fish just sent a, a note to the 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 four members of the band. They called me and said, "You better come round and see us." And the note said, uh, "If you don't accept my." My terms, my new terms for the band, and I've got to be honest here. One of those was that uh, he, I was fired. Right, is right. um, So I said, well, obviously, yeah. You're
0: I'm, not going to say yes to no.
1: that. <laughs> I said, obviously, I'm not going to accept them because you know. Yeah. And I think uh, Mark Kelly just said to me, look, you know, do you think we could carry on if 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 Fish decides to leave or we don't we don't want this? And I said, well, look, you know. This is where we're at. We've we've you've sold five million albums. You guys write the music. You know that's that was one of the key things. Without going into more details than that, is what I said to Fish. I said the, the band write the music. Um, you can carry on writing the music, uh, but obviously we've got to replace um, uh, the frontman if 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 that's the way we've got to go and. Uh, They said right, okay, and and to be honest, you know, the four guys. I said it's down to you. It's not me because it's weird. Years later, people come to me, Fish fans, and come to me and say, "How come you got Fish kicked out?" And it was like nothing to do with me. I didn't get him kicked out. It was like no, I didn't get him kicked out. It was like I if if I if the band had agreed with what Fish wanted to do, then I would have been fired. Yeah. So, um. So it was a very very upsetting time, but the the guys wrote on the you know we accept your letter of resignation, and and I was the one that was sent to give it to him, and uh, wow. that was that. Yeah, that must have been uh, yeah tough. It was it was because it was it was uh, it was you know you know six years of, uh, of hard work. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, these things happen. Yeah
0: yeah. Uh, so so once. Fish was out of Meridian. Was there a sense of relief in the band or was it, were they worried? Were they?
1: Well, I think that, I mean, again, without going into too much details, what happened at that meeting was that the various band members has also told me about their issues with Fish as well as, you know, my own issues with Fish. Um, So it was very much, well, look, let's get out and prove something here. You know, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's do this. Um, and originally, you know, the first few people, well, quite a lot of people, that we uh, got to audition for a new vocalist, and it was all very much. The trouble is, most of the people that came along just tried, thought they had to try and imitate fish, right. which didn't work. <laughs> um, and then their songwriting was moving ahead really nicely. The music, and we said, "Well, look, we got the music. We just need, we just need a lyricist here." And I brought in a guy from EMI to work with me, and his guy's name was Dwayne Welsh. And he one day called me and said, "Look, I've been in Rondor, publishing music publishing, and they would given me this tape of this this guy called Steve Hogarth, um, and the lyrics are great. We think I think that, I think his, his lyrics would really fit. So I sent the tape to the band." Um, they agreed or took it to the band they agreed they said well let's let's get him in and let's let's have a writing session with him and originally it was that it was supposed to be a writing session for him to and he was not certain whether he, he wanted to join or not but he was well into writing with the band and they went in the studio to uh, picture others house and um and then a couple of weeks it was a bit later but the band just called me and just said we really think he should, we should offer him to join. Right, yeah. <laughs> so he said, he's great. He really is. And, of course, his, his stage presence was totally different. He was a real – his own personality. Absolutely, yeah. So um, – and I called him up and we, we went for, a, a as I call it, a business lunch. <laughs> to say, well, <laughs> yeah. just to much. It's changing how the band works and what we were going to do. Um, and, uh, yeah, and basically – he, he said, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And, uh, and so we, so we went back and of course the, the, I don't know if you were going to ask me about the option situation, but, um, Oh, uh,
0: I don't know about the option situation. So I'm curious.
1: (laughs) Yeah, What what happens when a, when a band, people leave bands, for example, that fish left the band. So EMI still had the option. They still had the band signed, uh, with an option to take up for the, for another album. Um And so they had an option for both uh, and uh yeah they, they didn't have to take it up for a little bit of a time so so um uh Nick Gatfield, the, who's now the new head of a r said to the, said to us, go off and write some material um put the band in the studio, and uh, we'll check it out and that's what happened and uh um basically. Then some issues then going on with, with fish and which was really silly, but yeah. Then what happened was that, um, we you know, I went down the studio and I thought, right, well, this is great, yeah. And I called Nick, I said, come down and listen to this. Um, and he went down to the rehearsal room, went in and said, absolutely brilliant, let's start recording now, let's go with it, right? Wow, yeah. Yeah. took up the option straight away. Um, and so was, uh, sorry, John, yeah.
0: I was just gonna say, was there a feeling though with because uh. Steve Hogarth had come from a slightly poppier background. Was there a feeling yeah. from the record company as well that this could be a good thing, uh, in terms of? I, yeah, I think the, so. I think so.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think so. And um, yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, I've got to be honest. We none of us had any idea um, how the fan base would react. Mm. You know, it was it, it was a difficult one. But we just we thought, well, let's let's forget all about that. Let's just get the record done. Let's just do. The, let's just make the album. There yeah. has
0: there has been talk from band members over the years that they felt that they should have perhaps changed their name when Steve joined. Do you agree with that?
1: Um, no, no. I think that it was uh, they might have thought about it very early on in the days, but uh, I think that the you know the Meridian, I think personally, Marillion with Fish was was it was not Fish's band. Yeah. I mean, that's you know from from the inside, I knew just how important those four musicians were and are. You know, they they because the way they used to work is that the music was was written first, and then Fish would listen to tracks and be inspired by it and put his and and fit the lyrics to the tracks. Um, Fish doesn't play an instrument you know he 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 needed those guys and i felt that they were the the root of Marillion. and uh i really i still do yeah i still do
0: yeah yeah so but do you think that was that's what went out of kilter within the band partly that perhaps fish started to feel it was more his band
1: than the the other members yeah I, i think that was the problem i think that it's one of those issues that happens with a lot of bands is that going back to the sort of once Kaylee was a hit, right? So, you know, basically yeah, the the promotion involved fish. People, yeah. you know, if you're doing radio, TVs, going around the country doing promotion. And you would take fish plus one other band member, you know. Um, but nobody wanted to speak to the other band members. <laughs> you know, they always wanted to speak to fish yeah. and, and, and that is the way it works with with a lot of bands, you know especially it's the front man that's the famous one. Um, they you know they, they want to speak to him all the time. Yeah. and I think the problem there was that fish very much felt that Merlin was him, it was his band, and that he and, and that he should receive you know that yeah that claim so that's Um, that's a
0: hard thing then for a new lead singer to step into and yeah try and be that figurehead that you know has got a big shadow being cast over him
1: um yeah it it was But um what was interesting for us is that uh one of the first sort of major events that we played with steve Hmm was we'd been we'd been offered some festivals in Brazil and uh, when Fish was still in the band. And I remember going back to the promoters and just and saying look, you know, we've we've changed vocalists. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and they were like, not a problem, it's Marillion. Right. It's Mar- <laughs> Right. So we so we went down to Brazil and it was, you know, there we were going on stage in front of 30,000 people with a brand new vocalist. Wow. And the audience went nuts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was just like wow. And it, it Steve realised as well because he thought, oh crikey! But what, what happens if I go on and ask him, Kaylee? What are they going to do? Yeah, they all sang along with him. Right. <laughs> you know, it just like, yeah, <laughs> um, and it, it, it was you know, certain areas in the world. And it, it's funny because the band is still very, very popular. Probably you know they play bigger venues down in South America than they than they have done over here for years. Um. And it was very much um yes, it was um but it was it was Steve Hogarth's merillion, you know, or Marillion with Steve Hogarth rather than Marillion with Fish. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah.
0: So season's end came out. Were the record company happy with how well it did, given that there was a drop in sales from where they'd been?
1: Well, what was it what was interesting is yes, we you know, there was a drop in sales um and there was a bit of an issue going on because they decided to release um the Merillion album before the fish album yep. and they were looking at the sales we you know we'd gone down to across europe four hundred thousand or something like that um but what actually helped Marillion, <laughs> dare i say is that when the fish album came out it sold a lot less than right. the regular, okay gotcha you know? and yeah, so Marillion were very much, you know, the labels were right, great, let's move on. Let's get on with another album. Let's still look for a, a hit single. Yeah. <laughs> um and so they you know, we moved on to the you know, holidays in Eden.
0: So that was that the thinking behind Holidays in Eden being poppier, for want of a
1: better word. The- yes, it was. It was. And it was one of those things I've got to be honest with you, at that point, um, Tony Smith, you know, uh, you know, Genesis and Phil Collins management, uh, uh, approached me about joining their company. Um, and Tony Smith had sort of, uh, said, well, look, he, he'd had a similar situation with Mike and mechanics about looking for, a you know, going, having a hit single and, and Chris Neal, the, the promoter had delivered. And, um, so Chris had a meeting with the band and said, yeah, let's have a go, you know? And, uh, And it's one of those, it's one of those, you know, there's some great tracks on there, but uh, the singles didn't happen. But we, we, you know, we carried on selling. Yeah.
0: So moving into Brave, uh, they took a complete left turn. (laughs) What was, and it was a long, (laughs) uh, long, protracted, expensive album to make. Were you at any point cracking the whip and kind of going, we need to,
1: you know, hurry along. Well, I think, I think what happened was that we, as a as a band, had had a, a, a major major discussions about where the band wanted to go. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, we felt, and and you know, I think it was it was a, a unanimous decision from the the band members and my and myself that, yeah, you know, we we knew we had probably three to four hundred thousand hardcore fans and we knew that what those hardcore fans wanted Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they didn't want hit singles um and we were discussing about long term for the band um people were moving on and, and whatever and it was very much well let's why don't we do a concept album yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. because what well, also the other thing was that you know you know it was like, um, you know, you never know what could turn up when you do a concept album. You might find a little piece in the middle that could turn into a single. Oh yeah. before. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was almost like, stop trying to write hit singles, guys, yeah. and just write like what you love doing. Um, and uh, that's how Brave came about. Right. What, yeah. what was your first reaction when you heard it? Um. <laughs> I, I I thought the fans would like it, but I knew that the label it would be a hard sell for me with the label.
0: Yeah. So what? Yeah. Um, so what was their reaction? When they,
1: <laughs> they heard it back. Well, they 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 basically said, "Look, well, let's put this out and see what happens." Okay. Yeah. And uh, you yeah, know, the situation there was that it uh, it didn't sell enough for them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So am I right in thinking then that the, at that point? the band were either wanting to be or they wanted to drop the band or they were on thin ice at least but you convinced the label to give them one more go
1: yeah that was the case yeah that was the case i i, I went in for a meeting and said look come on just give us you know give us one more chance and and i've and i've got to admit that i, I you know i said look we've been with you for years we've made emi a fortune <laughs> Back in the eighties, the royalty rates for the artists weren't exactly as they are today. Um, I said, "Come on, give us give us another chance." You know, I said that. that looking at the numbers, um, I said, "The worst is going to ha- the worst that can happen here is that uh, you'll break even. Yeah, you, know, you might not make money on this particular album, but you'll break even, and the catalog is still selling away. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, um, yes, they, yeah, that, that's what happened. Yeah. So when uh, they were
0: finally dropped um was there ever a a, you know talk of them perhaps calling it a day or did you feel that things needed to change in in terms of how day-to-day they they operated or was there a sense of sort of no we can still keep going
1: no it was always we can keep going yeah it was always there was never a question that the band should give up um because, you know, we'd sit there and I'd say, well, look, you know, the last album did 250000 um, Now you work out how much money that, I mean, because one thing that, <laughs> one thing that had happened is that around that time there was, there, there was all the bootlegging issues going on. And uh, what we did was we went to, to the label and said, look, we want to come out and say, we're, we're, we're we 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 want to fight against, against this. So what we, we would like to do is record some of our shows and sell the live albums direct to the fans at the regular price, not a bootleg 25, 30 quid a, a go, right? And EMI actually supported this. Right. Um, and what happened was that you know we, we recorded, uh, you know, and they said you can, you can do one album per tour. OK. <laughs> So we did a UK tour, yep. and we did a German tour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that, was me. that was my idea. We could, <laughs> we could do so, and we could only sell ten thousand from each tour. That was the deal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but what it did um, was that it showed us how much it actually costs to make an album. Uh, and put it bluntly, it was less than a pound a finished copy, right? To deliver it um obviously, on top of that you've got the marketing and promotion costs but just to do just to do that right we realized that we could easily easily um sell uh you know enough to to make it you know for, to to carry on basically um and we did try we did one album uh with a small independent distributor um and uh you know this strange engine i think was, yeah. i think i've got right yeah that would be next <laughs> yep yeah um and uh and then we were talking about you know, the next album you know and that did okay that did define that the distributor made money everybody everybody was fine but then it was like we was having a band meeting and it was like you know why are we giving this small distributor you know the lion's share what can we do ourselves and then, Very simply, what had happened is that uh, we'd been—I got a call from our American fan club, and they said, "Well, are the band going to tour this year?" And we said, "Well, I don't think we can afford to come over to America this year. Um, We just, you know, because usually we we make enough from the label or whatever." And they said, "Well, look, why don't we do? um, You can buy a ticket, and if you if you um, buy a ticket, you can also buy." A, a live album of that show. So we would record every show and deliver a live album and uh, at the end of the tour. And the response, because they, you know, without going into exact figures, they, t- you know, they asked me how much money we needed to tour America. And I told them and uh, they said, well, that means we've got to sell X amount of copies. And we sold twice the amount of copies that we needed. <laughs> and so we, the band toured America. Yeah. And when we were having the meeting, um, it was, it was um, we said, well, look, we don't, we, you know, what had happened is that the band had got their own recording studio, their own rehearsal room. The only thing we needed was to, to release our own albums as the marketing spend. Yeah. We could make it, you know, all, all in-house and we worked out how much we needed and uh, I think it was Steve Hogarth and forgive me guys if I've got the wrong person here but, uh, <laughs> it's, it's I think it was Steve Hogarth said, well, why don't we do what the Americans have done and put up to our fan base through the UK the idea of, of um, you, know, paying, you know buying the album before it's released yeah, before we recorded it wow. that... and that's what we did and we raised again plenty of money to be able to market it and promote it properly. And that's how the whole thing started and, and uh that's how they've carried on for years. It's been fantastic. And in a funny sort of way, if EMI dropping the group was the best thing that happened for them.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it certainly seemed that they like, kind of thrived. So so when did you uh come to the end of your association with them and how did that come about?
1: Uh-oh well i mean it was it it was it was um it was difficult what what happened is this this had for, this had happened um i was working with Tony Smith at hit and Run uh and was running a whole new i was running the london management company side of things you know and i, w- I wasn't actually involved with phil and Genesis but you know I was overseeing Mechanics and we had a lot of young managers with a lot of It was weird at the time, sort of pop acts, you know, (laughs) and and, and believe it or not, the reggae band Aswad that were doing a million albums worldwide. Right, right. Um, And we had a band meeting, and I said to them, look, you know, where you're set up now, what I think you should do is you should spend half your time working on Marillion, and the other half, you should be doing solo projects, um, because your fan base will want that kind of thing. And without saying who, one of the band members said to me, John, we want somebody that can believe that we can become as big as we were with Fish. We want a manager that believes we can get to that big again. And I I said, look, I've been with you all these years, and I'd be lying if I said, I think we could get up to that again. I said, I don't think that's going to happen. I think what we've got to do is play to that fan base. And so reluctantly we agreed that uh, we shook hands and called it a day um, i'm not being weird, you know but it was it was very it was very sad i, did, I didn't want to, i didn't want that to happen but that's that's what happened i mean i'm quite i mean i'm still friends with the guys now and still go and see them occasionally and all i can say is when i look back at what they're doing it's exactly what i said <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. it's it, it hindsight's a wonderful thing isn't
1: it <laughs> you <laughs> told you so <laughs> it is you know i don't care. i'll have to laugh about it but it is they're, they're, they're all doing their solo things and 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 it's great i mean it really is i mean i was at the albert hall you know last year and looking at that and watching the crowd and it was it was great it was really really good yeah oh well that's that's
0: lovely to hear but, but yeah. you know there's there's no bad blood there. And I know no, Steve Hogarth no. on his, cause he does a podcast as well. Now he speaks very highly of you on there and,
1: um, yeah, it's sort of always lovely to hear. So, so that's no, great. I mean, Steve seems, I mean, yeah, he was great and he is great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, And that's, that's what I say. It's like, uh, you know, and, and it's so funny. I've got, I've got this sort of crazy story, which you can leave it or not, but I, I you know, I, um, 16 years ago, I had a, a son, Right. and uh, we went round to the local church because we wanted to have him christened. And uh, the, the the priest said to me, um, are you John Arneson? You've got something to do with Marillion I said, <laughs> yes. He said, I'm a Hogarth fan myself. Oh, <laughs> <blim>. <laughs> and it was great because he, he called me about a month or two later and said um, – I see Steve's doing a solo gig at the Bush Hall. He said, uh, would you mind taking me along? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I up and it was so funny because I said, Do you mind if I bring my my local priest along? And I think he was worried that I'd suddenly become a born again Christian or something. Yeah. Super. So happy. I took him along to the show and it was it was great. It was really, really good. And uh, and that is it. I mean, yeah, quite a lot of people say that to me. They said they're 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 yeah, they're Fish Marillion fans or they're Hogarth Marillion fans. And, and that's the way it
0: is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'll be glad to hear I'm a fan of both very much. So, yeah. so you know. So, lastly, then, before we yeah. say goodbye, I mean, just looking back, what what is the biggest or the proudest moment that you had with Marillion or what is your proudest achievement that you feel that you contributed to the band?
1: Oh, it's um, it's a hard one to. It's a hard one to. There's various moments over the years. Um, I remember the first, uh, you know, the first big moment was when um, uh, we the band played Hammerthode Odin that time. I told you when it had sold out before the album was released, and one of the best memories of me and Fish was that. He, I was at the side of the stage as they were finishing, uh, and he ran over to me and picked me up, <laughs> hugged me, threw me around, and said, "We've done it! We've done it!" Wow! Right. Oh, and I always amazing. remember that. <laughs> you know, so it, it was just fantastic. Um, and then probably, yeah, that that was. The, and then obviously we went on to do things like Milton Keynes and and that sort of thing. And uh, and as I say, it was it was. Uh, now that 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 really sticks out. I know that later on we played bigger venues and whatever but that was that was a real moment of yes, you know. And that was my personal moment because obviously I started working with Status Quo and they were doing Hammersmith Odeon and I always wanted my band to sell out Hammersmith Odeon and that that to me was fantastic. And then a very similar situation with with uh, with Steve, you know, when um we 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 went out and we thought, oh, how's how's this going to work? <laughs> you know, yeah, how are we going to yeah. do? And uh, I remember going going to Wembley and it it wasn't sold out, but it was pretty full. And it was like, yes, this is actually real and it's happening. You know. Because I'm I'm alive. I, I am a big live fan myself. Yeah, you know. yeah. So what are you doing today these days? I mean, not literally today, but <laughs> 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 don't need that well, much I, detail. I've sort of had a very, a very sort of varied career, really. Because after after leaving Tony Smith, after a, num- a good number of years, I I, I managed Gabrielle from twenty. 20- 1999 to 2005 when she she had a comeback and that was that was hugely successful and then um oh and then i I then went on a bit of a weird you know (laughs) because people often laugh at it because i managed left field for a while which is yeah yeah Um, but the last 16 years i've been uh not 16 no it's 13 years at the moment sorry uh, into its 14th year, I've been managing Billy Ocean. Right, amazing. Which, yeah. uh, again, is a fantastic live act, and it's uh, no, I just, I just, uh, I, I, I've kept to the rule of not having, you know, more than two or three projects at a time. I can really give it my my concentrated effort and uh, and do the best I can. Yeah, yeah, amazing. So there we go.
0: What a legend! It was very kind of John to give up his time because I'm sure he had better things to do than be talking to me. Talking to Billy Ocean, for instance.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. He's a cool dude. He is a cool dude. But honestly, um, thank you, John. Again, if you listen to this, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us so openly. So one last thing, which I feel is a lovely little postscript to the interview. Uh, Before we began, John did share with me that, and I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this with you as well, that he'd spoken to Fish the week before, for the first time in, well, probably decades, certainly since the breakup. And by all accounts, it was a very civil and pleasant chat. And John, certainly from his point of view, doesn't feel there's any sort of bad blood and that things are... Yeah, there's no hard feelings. And for me, that was lovely to hear because... As we know, for a time, it did kind of get a bit nasty and silly, as John said, um, after Fish left the band. And given that Fish is on good terms with all the rest of Marillion, it's sort of lovely to hear that potentially now he's on good terms with John Arneson as well, that sort of two old soldiers, as it were, who got their battle scars and went through a lot, can, you know, put down the axes <laughs> and, uh, and just share a chat. And I thought it was lovely. So there you go. That's a Pod exclusive. Fish and John Arneson have spoken recently. Mm. Sonny's just nodding at me. She is still here. I haven't.
1: am still here. I'm just listening.
0: <laughs> She's just listening. i
1: listening like you are.
0: So yeah, thank you again, John, for your time. Uh, that was an absolute honour. Uh, and that's the end of this week's episode. So as always, go spread the word if you can. Um, support us however you can by subscribing, telling people. Um, you can back us on Patreon if you want, which is patreon.com slash MrBiffo, where you will get episodes early. And you might even get the occasional episodes such as the one we recorded earlier today, where I'd forgotten to turn on the main mics. And so uh, the sound quality isn't really good to share with you.
1: Such a good episode as well.
0: I know. Uh, one of our best. One who genuinely was one of our best. It was about the Marillion Christmas poll.
1: You may yet manage to fix the audio. We'll
0: see. You didn't anyway.
1: purposely not turn the mics on, they were on. It's just the recorder fell and then they got switched off.
0: Yeah. I don't think we can quite bring ourselves to go through two hundred odd Marillion songs It for wouldn't a be as
1: spontaneous yeah. and hilarious as it was the first time <laughs> yeah
0: another of our treading water episodes that i know you all love <laughs> yeah. so much talking of um you can oh you can now get a bm pod t-shirt if uh, i will we'll leave a link somewhere in the in the episode description talking of the treading water episodes next week we've got an epic afraid of sunlight post bag <laughs> epic hmm Uh we thought we'd rather than split it up, we thought we'd just cram it all in. So if you don't like listening to people's opinions, why are you listening to this podcast? Skip next week, but don't, because I think it will be interesting. I think it will
1: be interesting.
0: Um But so, we're gonna
1: probably put it out as one. Yeah, so probably, one it's probably gonna episode. be two hours, let's face it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because a lot of you wrote in, thank you. So you can also write to us if you are quick, um, at Be very quick. Be very, very quick. Because I've
1: already put the all the letters into the document.
0: They don't need to know that. (laughs) So, uh, that's it for this week. We'll speak to you all very soon.
1: Stay healthy and happy. Yes. Bye. Do
0: those things.